Welcome lovers, fantasists, romantics, and dreamers. I'm Grant Faulkner from NaNoWriMo, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner from She Writes Press. And Brooke, every once in a while, we feature an author from a genre that we haven't really deeply explored for its its genre characteristics. And today's genre romance is particularly interesting to me because it's actually the top-selling genre in fiction. I think that goes for the United States and globally. Yet it's often trivialized, denigrated, disrespected, not just by the public, but by the publishers that actually make a lot of money off of it. And I think there's a snobbishness involved because the literary crowd tends to favor stories that are tragic or ambiguous or full of existential angst, you know, just on principle. And and romance is a genre that is fundamentally about escape and fulfillment because one definition of a romance novel is that it has to have a happy ending because the two main characters have to fall in love. And this reminds me of a conversation I actually had with my freshman college roommate who asked why comedies never win an Oscar. And I think he was right. A comedy can certainly be a great movie and a greater movie than a tragedy. So why not? My other theory, though, is different. Uh, I think that since romance novels are largely written by and for women, there is just a deeply embedded sexism at work. So I'm curious what your take is, Brooke. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that take too. Certain genres definitely are considered to be more lowbrow also, uh, you maybe not deserving of the same respect as works that are by contrast more literary. You know, I was thinking about the conversation we had about literary works recently with Andy Hunter at uh, bookshop.org, uh, you know, because it's just the case that these other kinds of genres, the non-literary uh, romance among them sell the absolute best, right? So romance is one of those genres that has the readers, they have the people who commit to romance and they read a lot. Uh, And I do think that more and more, you know, over time, these biases are being broken up a bit just due to the fact of sales, because modern romance writers are refusing to be put into boxes that I think were originally created by and for some literary elite. (laughs) That's my take on it at the moment. Um, And we're seeing this across a lot of genres, you know, across a lot of authors, actually, the rise of indie publishing and indie authors is an acknowledgement that there are a lot of writers out there who are carving their own paths. I I think they have the boldness to do that because they have the readers. And so, you know, romance was stigmatized, perhaps in the past, maybe it still is a little bit as being embarrassing to read. Uh, But it's sort of like, getting caught watching soaps, more like a guilty pleasure. And my sense is that people are less and less embarrassed by things like that Mm -hmm. right now. You know, society has really shifted in a sense, just in the sense that we are less embarrassed by trivial things. Um, But that doesn't mean that romance doesn't sometimes get the short shrift. Yeah, thank God we're feeling less and less guilty about our guilty pleasures or less and less shameful. You know, I'm I'm always interested in the expansiveness that a genre can hold and the surprises it can hold. And and romance novels continue to expand in, in new and interesting ways, you know, beyond the bodice ripping covers that we're all familiar with. Um, there's contemporary romance, erotic romance, gay romance, historical romance, paranormal romance, spiritual romance, YA romance. There's even fireman and hockey player romance, <laughs> maybe together. And I'm I'm totally serious about that. I have a, a friend who writes gay hockey player romance. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's something for everyone in the romance genre because there's literally a romance category for every kind of love interest, which is why it's such a cool genre. It's really an all-inclusive genre, perhaps because it is about an all-inclusive emotion love. 
And, and that is its prime value, I think, in many ways. We need to be reminded that love exists in the world sometimes, even if it's only the type of fantastical love that can exist only in a story. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I read this commentary from the book, uh, Literary Terms to Prep for Today's Interview, and it said, sad love songs and poems when one is recovering from a broken heart can help express unspoken feelings. Happy romantic movies and plays help people feel optimistic that someday they will also find true love. However, there is some criticism that many modern romantic stories make people develop unrealistic views about real relationships as they expect love to be like it is in the movies. And I read that and I was like, you know, this is a little bit similar to critiquing a fantasy novel because it will make some people think they're wizards and can fly, <laughs> you know, um, I'd say one, it's not exactly bad to think you're a wizard. And two, it's unlikely that reading fantasy is going to harmly divorce you from the real world. Uh, and in the same way, reading romance, I don't think is likely to warp your review of relationships. Yeah, I think that's right. And to answer the literary critiques, I'd also say that literary fiction includes a lot of romance as well, uh, starting with Jane Austen. And then I think you could argue that Romeo and Juliet is a romance as well, even though, you know, of course, it has an unhappy ending. But the whole story is about two lovers finding a way to be together. So it qualifies for me. And also, I want to note that a romance novel doesn't have to be just about the romance. Uh, today's guest, Angelina Lopez's new book, is one part historical novel as well. It deals with the topic of Mexican laborers being recruited to come to Kansas to build a railroad at the beginning of the 1900s, which is how her family settled in Kansas. And I think many people, you know, they think of romance novels, they think that they're all like those Danielle Steele novels featuring rich, glamorous people who are traveling to exotic locations. But a lot of her romances also deal with, with other tough subjects of life as well, like date rape, domestic violence, and addiction. Uh, so there are room for a lot of different topics. But you know what, Brooke? I'm thinking that we're actually making arguments to justify a genre. And I don't think it needs justification, especially because it's literally the most popular genre in the world, which means plenty of people find meaning in it. And I'm, I'm thinking of the Mary Carr quote about memoir that you often refer to, that memoir doesn't need to be justified. Yeah, exactly. That was when I asked Mary Carr, when I got the opportunity to interview her, if she thought that memoir needed to be defended. And she said, no, <laughs> mm. you know, and that's the case here with romance too. romance as a genre certainly doesn't need to be defended or justified, as you say, but writers and authors of genres that are on the receiving ends of these kinds of conversations, I think get understandably defensive because of the aforementioned bias and elitism in this industry. And I know that I have often been in the position that I feel like I want to defend a certain genre, especially memoir. And that's like the conversation we're having today, because, because it gets a lot of flack and, and people feel like they need to be like, but wait. Um, but I do want to talk about the guilty pleasure thing for a second, just because it's just an indulgence, you know, and I've definitely felt that watching Bridgerton. <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally love that show. And it's actually based off of a series of historical romance novels, which many people probably know. Uh, and part of what makes it a guilty pleasure for me is just the utter fantasy of the whole thing. And I love uh, later when we get to our interview, Angelina is going to be like, it's just ridiculous and bonkers, you know, and it's like it 
it is that, you know, I mean, it's a, but it's super fun. There are twists and turns and sex and romance, you know, and bucking conventions. And, you know, I think we'll, a lot of us will like guiltily confess that we like this stuff because it's like brain candy. Um, you know, it can sometimes be, even be scandalous or feel that way, you know, People might have feelings about the fact that they like bodice ripper romance or gay romance or erotica romance. But one of the reasons, too, that they kind of have gone underground historically, I think, is because the covers of these books are sometimes embarrassing to read in public. And so you'll hear that many, many readers of romance consume their fiction on e-reading devices. And I've also read that there are other reasons that readers of romance have embraced e-readers, which is uh, includes things like the fact that they read so, so much that the price points just make sense. Um, and also just because romance writers themselves are so prolific, lots of them have extensive backlists, and many of them also publish across many publishers, which means that they might have traditionally published books and also self-published books. And so when a reader finds someone they love, it's often the case that they want to snap up all they can. And so it can just be a lot cheaper and easier to have a stack of, you know, 15 to 20 books in your Kindle rather than lined up in your bedroom. But, you know, the bottom line is that these readers are voracious, which is super fun and might lend all of you to think about writing romance to get those voracious readers. Um, and also, you know, they are writing more complex stories, as you said, and it made me think of some of our right-minded guests like uh, Jasmine Guillory and Alexis Daria and Aya De Leon, just to mention a few. While you were talking, I just kept thinking about it. It's such a shame that people feel that they feel shamed for reading something that gives them pleasure. Um, and it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure. I think, I think of romance and our perceptions of it or culture perceptions, you know, similar to the way that some kids are discouraged from reading graphic novels or comic books because they're, they're considered not real books. Um, or I think about how my son's eighth grade English teacher admonished him for reading fantasy novels instead of gritty literary realism. And when I was an English major in college, I remember some, Renaissance thinker who I wish I could remember uh, their name, but um, he said the purpose of art and literature was to delight and instruct, which I think is a pretty good goal and, and definition. And I think we should allow people to decide how their reading delights and instructs. I don't like the rankings of genres. Yeah, you know, best-selling author Nora Roberts summed this up really well about the genre. She said, the books are about the celebration of falling in love and emotion and commitment and all of those things we really want. So there you go. You know, sometimes you just have to want to live the things you really want or, you know, to end up there rather. Yeah, end up there because love and writing and writing about love are always a journey. So I can't wait to talk more to my good friend Angelina about her journey, which we'll do right after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Welcome back, everybody. I am very, very excited today to introduce our guest because I know Angelina Lopez as an intrepid reporter from our days at the Des Moines Register way back in the 90s. Uh, but she's more than a reporter. One day while we were standing in the newsroom in the Des Moines Register, she whispered to me that she wanted to write romance novels. And that was somewhat of a surprising thing to say in this, this gritty world of daily journalism we were in. So I was super happy when she published her first romance novel uh, just a few years ago. I was also very pleased to see that her first book in the series, Lush Money, was named a top 10 romance debut of 2020. And then the second, Hate Crush, also received rave reviews from Entertainment Weekly, NPR, and Booklist. And now she has written the first book in a new series, after Hours on Milagro Street, which is described as a high-heat, small-town Latinx book. But it's also a book that's about Angelina's family, a large, multi-generational Mexican-American family in southeast Kansas, and it's already received two-star reviews and raves from Entertainment Weekly and Booklist again. Welcome, Angelina. Hi, thank you so much. It's so lovely to see you, Grant, and thank you for having me on, Brooke. Definitely. You know, and Angelina, I want to go back since I knew you at the very beginning or before the beginning in some ways. I want to go back to that initial moment when you told me you wanted to write romance novels. And I'm curious, why did romance speak to you and how did you know it was your genre? And also, since it took both of us many years to actually publish our work as novels, uh, tell us a bit about that long and winding journey. Yeah, sure. I always knew I wanted to write. It was the first thing I wanted to do was write fiction. And but I was a Virgo and a oldest daughter and all of those stereotypes that go along with it. And so I remember having a conversation with my mom at like 10 and saying, well, I want to be a fiction writer, but you can't make any money at it. So what other things mm -hmm. can I be doing? She suggested newspaper journalism. And I kind of just went from there at 10, like, okay, that's what I will do. That makes sense to me. And so became a newspaper journalist. And enjoyed it. It was a fraught time. Well, it's always been a fraught time recently to be a newspaper journalist uh, for the last, what, 20 years. But um, it was a fraught time. I did enjoy it. But what I enjoyed best was the writing. Within that time, considering myself this very kind of illiterate little kid, um, I was reading romance novels. I started reading them when I was 12-ish, probably, read them all through high school. And it was about in the eighth grade. I was um, I had just moved to San Francisco from the Midwest and really was the first time I'd encountered the mean girls. And the only thing that kind of got me through that experience was getting a romance novel. I'd go to the local B Dalton at the mall and get a romance novel. And I'd go to my room and I would read it for the next seven hours because it was the only thing that allowed me to mentally escape kind of the oppression of the mean girl and knowing that this wasn't a situation I could control. This wasn't a situation that I could, you know, talk my way out of. I just needed to get to high school and then the mean girls of the eighth grade would go away. And so I really learned at a pretty early age, kind of the mental health aspect of escapism and joy and, you know, the fantasy of sex and all of those things. But this idea that something that took me out of my head and took me away from my stress I learned the real value, the real intrinsic value of that. And so I became a journalist. And about the time I knew you, Grant, was I was becoming, you know, we kind of knew each other in like the primordial ooze, at least for me, of <laughs> writing. You know, I had just turned 22 when I moved to Des Moines when I was working for the Register. And so kind of understanding myself as a woman and as a professional, I was living with my boyfriend who became my husband at the time and starting to understand my place in the world as, as a woman 
and it connected that these romance novels at that point had primarily been about the woman's journey. These were books that really embraced and celebrated a woman's exploration of who she wanted to be, how she wanted to live her life, and found a partner who really embraced that for her, who embraced her, you know, finding herself at those times, there were a lot of books about women professionals. There were a lot of books about women doing, you know, jobs that we weren't seeing in the late 80s, early 90s, and also embracing her sexuality. And I realized that this was an industry, again, at that time, that was pre- predominantly by women, for women, about the women's journey. And that my whole sense of shame about it was didn't make any sense that it was really kind of this, I think, don't think I would have used the word patriarchal back then, but it was this sense that had been imposed upon me and not one that was real. And so, you know, a couple of years later was, I really embraced that this was an amazing genre. It had done amazing things for me. I fundamentally believe in the joy of escapism. And it was something that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So about my late 20s is when I really, really settled down and decided I was going to write them. Of course, I didn't actually publish until um, mid 40s. But you know, that's a whole nother story. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the journey. And that's that's super fun. Well, and I love that you're embracing it so much, because we wanted to talk about the ways that romance isn't necessarily about those bodice ripping covers of ideal women, and sometimes men that are so stereotypical of the genre. And Carrie Buckley, executive editor at Karina Press, singled out how you write about sex. And Grant and I just wanted to share these lines because she said of your main character, Alex, Alex's body and Jeremiah's appreciation for her body play very heavily into those sex scenes. He revels in her soft stomach and he acknowledges the strength in her thick thighs and he loves her giant ass. He's just (laughs) gone for her physically in a way that is so gorgeous and gives insight into the dynamics of their relationship. So I love all of that. And I'd love for you to tell us more about why you wrote Alex's body the way you did. In my family, I am third generation Mexican-American and we, you know, we have a lot of women with big thighs and big butts and big boobs. And we don't really use the word plus size or curvy. We just are. That just is the body type. I remember I had lived in uh, D.C. for a while, Northwest D.C., Georgetown University, you know, a, a, a nice area of town. And I remember walking into a class and looking in the mirror and realizing at a completely healthy 135 pounds, I was the biggest woman in the room. And I loved my body and I loved, you know, but it made me appreciate I was also the only woman of color in the room. It made me in that single moment really appreciate that my body type was different, maybe partly because of my genetics, um, that the BMI didn't fit me and that I could be lovely and proud regardless. And so, again, it's just taking that body type of the woman of color of all the different varieties and that it doesn't fit so much of the mode that we're used to. And so with Alex, I just wanted her to appear on the page with all of that great booby buddiness, hippiness that the women in my family are very, very proud of with absolutely no moment of her or her hero characterizing it as something that she's working around. It's just she absolutely enjoys her body just the way it is. And she has a hero who loves it just the way it is, that it's absolutely this strong, luscious body that she's incredibly proud of. But 
I think we're spending a lot of time reevaluating the lens that we've seen a lot of things. And this was just one opportunity for me to look at how we're looking at body types. That in that same review, they they mentioned that it's never explicitly talked about her size, her weight, other than just this kind of lusciousness of her. Her body dimensions are just a characteristic of who she was. It wasn't something that I needed to highlight and underline because I don't think that body type needs to be highlighted and under underlined. So, uh, yeah, I wanted her to be sexy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Angelina, I like the way that you use the word lusciousness uh, in in that response, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you also have a lusciousness of characterization. And and what I mean when I say that that is that when I was in graduate school, one of the critiques that annoyed me to no end was when somebody would essentially invalidate my story by saying the main character was unlikable. Yeah. And I've never once really thought about the likability of my characters. I've always just written them as humans full of contradictions, you know, both likable and unlikable, depending on who you are. And I know you have some strong feelings about this, especially when it comes to your female characters. So I'm curious, how do you feel when a critic or reader writes, as one did recently, it took me a while to like Alex. She was just so abrasive. I think in the beginning, I just thought, well, you're wrong. Um, I know that's untrue. In the beginning, I was just surprised. I, the first character I wrote for publication, Roxanne Medina, is a self made billionaire in Lush Money, the first book I wrote. And so when I wrote her, I was writing a self made billionaire with 40,000 employees. And so I had to stop and think if a woman has that many resources and the will of character to create a company like that, then how does she move in the world? How does she go about? How does she ask for things? Does she ask for things? Um, and so it just became a portrayal of a woman with a lot of resources and how a woman behaves with all of those resources. In romance, we'd want, we'd read a million billionaires with those resources, but not a female. So I just went at it as if you've got all of those resources and that will of character, how does the world work? When people said she was unlikable, I was shocked. Well, how she behaved made complete sense to me. But a woman walking into the room say, I've earned the right to say what I want and I'm going to say it was really off-putting for a lot of people, which A, surprised me. I think my second response is, well, you're just wrong. But my third response has become, there is an opportunity to teach people here. For that unfamiliar with women stepping into a room and say, I've earned the right to say what I want and this is what I want, that's a problem. And so I hope that with all of the kind of escapism I offer in my books, the joy, the and I'm going to say it, I think I write really good sex scenes. <laughs> so with all of that in play, I hope it also offers people an opportunity to see a female on the page, romance readers, an opportunity to see a female on the page that maybe they're not used to seeing on there. And if they see it on that page, maybe they're going to be more accustomed to seeing, seeing it in real life, more welcoming to it, more welcoming to that experience. At the same time, I don't even know if that's really necessary. I think most women, you know, are the backbone of most of the enterprises they go into. It's just how we perceive them, how we think they're supposed to show up on a page, how we think they're supposed to show up on a screen. And I want to give romance readers other opportunities. So I think I've traveled from surprise to, you know, I don't know, belligerence to <laughs> an opportunity. This is an opportunity for people to see a new kind of heroine on the page and a heroine that maybe in some ways can 
echo times for a woman when she's not feeling quite so steady on her feet in an, in, in an endeavor. Well, and Alex is a character, like you're saying, I mean, it's like she gets what she wants and probably is even seen as bitchy by some readers and is loud and challenging, but she's also challenging within her own family, especially with regard to Loretta, who's the matriarch. And so I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that relationship as well in terms of the role the family plays in your novel. Yeah. My family, that family is based on my own family. It is incredibly matriarchal. We, all of our events are around, the grandmothers are called grandma and the principal living great-grandmother is called big grandma. And once the great-grandmother passes away, then the next grandmother because becomes the big grandma. So big grandma is where you have all of your celebrations, all of your Sunday dinners, Christmas you know, Christmas uh, celebration. So Big Grandma is what we know. And so this idea of the woman kind of leading the way and creating this center point for the family is just something I know and just something that was effortless for me to grow up with. And so with Alex, it was necessary for me to show her at a place that she could have growth. I needed to have complications, to have a growth, to make an interesting genre novel. Um, you, I need growth in a novel. And I'm sending her home to this family that I inherently adore, obviously, and I want my audience to endure as well. And I needed an opportunity to show her at odds with a family that I wanted everyone to adore. But it really wasn't that difficult because in my own family, the fact that women are so strong means that they also inevitably butt heads all of the time, that they all have their strong ideals. Again, it's kind of going to my central kind of ethos, which is, you know, a woman should be able to walk into the room and say what she wants. And just because they're part of a large loving family doesn't mean they all get along and doesn't mean that all the women bend to the will of the one main woman, of the one main big grommel. And so it was an opportunity to show all of those dynamics in it. Um, of, you know, how do strong women stand up to each other? How do they learn from each other? How do they disagree? And how do they ultimately come to a place where they love and nurture each other? Well, Angelina, before you came on today, Brooke and I were talking about the, the many layers that a genre and in particular a romance novel can hold. And one thing that I think is interesting about this new trilogy is that it's also an historical novel, or the first one is, because it hinges on the, the influx of Mexican-Americans to the U.S. in the 19th century to build the railways. Yeah. And I'm interested in the, in the story um, you've told about growing up in Kansas and how when people have asked you where you're from and you said southeastern Kansas, they often replied, no, where are you really from? Yeah. And I was thinking that this book is in some ways an answer to that question, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I had proposed this series, uh, Mexican-Americans in Kansas, before the election. And as the election was coming on, it was becoming more and more difficult to write. I, I was just still working on Proposal, maybe the first book. Yeah, I guess the first book. It was becoming more and more difficult to write just because of the election and the ugliness coming up out around it. And I was really having a hard time figuring out how was I going to write this book about Mexican-Americans in Kansas when, you know, our central states weren't showing up the best way humanly possible during this election? And what I came to understand was 
this was still my home, that my family is still there and that it was growing up there on and off. I moved away when I was five, but all my family was still there. So visited quite a bit. It was still this place that I felt welcome, that I felt seen and that as a brown girl in a little white town felt interesting. I felt I had something different to offer than the other people around me. And I was treated that way. Our family was well-respected and enjoyed in that town. And it was only when I moved away that I realized it was different, that I realized that being brown in a small town, other people found odd, other people found weird. And I never got more responses when I said I'm from Kansas and people said, where are you originally from? I never got that response more than when I was lived in San Francisco and when I lived in D.C. The more urban an area got, and maybe they just felt more bold to ask, but but the more urban the area got, the smaller their minds got about where I could possibly be from. And so it was the opportunity to show this place um, that meant a lot to me. That was someplace that I did feel welcome and that, that was inherently diverse and inherently had a lot of stories to tell in a way that people don't always expect. It was also a time when, you know, we had the outgoing president saying horrible things about people that looked like me. And it was an opportunity to say, look, we've been here a very long time. We're going to be here and the country benefits from us being here. So it, you know, it, it was an opportunity for me to address a lot of the things that, um, that were bothering me at the time. Well, Angelina, in closing, the book is the first in a trilogy. And I know there are other family members who might be on their way to Freedom, Kansas now. (laughs) So can you tell us a bit about what to expect in the upcoming books? Sure. I just got the title for the next book. It's coming out uh, July 26, 2023. That's Full Moon Over Freedom. Full Moon Over Freedom. This series is about three sisters who all come home to claim the family bar and in the process save the small town they didn't realize they loved. So the second book, Full Moon Over Freedom, it comes out July 26, 2023. That is about the oldest sister, Jillian, who is the perfect DC wife and mom, um, newly divorced, was the perfect DC wife and mom, newly divorced. She comes home to her dismay and runs into the childhood friend turned bad boy, who is now a famous artist and a boy that she had had a um, sex contract with right after high school. So it's, again, bonkers and ridiculous and an opportunity for me to talk about really fun, ridiculous things. <laughs> Angelina, as one who grew up in a small town in the Midwest, this just sounds par for the course. This happens all the time. Right? I mean, People one come of the back best home part. and sparks fly. <laughs> <laughs> Bonkers and ridiculous sounds like a lot of fun too. So we were talking earlier about guilty pleasures and, and you know, let's bring it on. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Angelina. It was great to catch up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. And thank you, Grant, for having me on. This is really wonderful. Oh, thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, Grant, this week's trend has to do with Instagram in the form of its parent company, Facebook or Meta, rather, pushing what's called Reels, some people will be familiar with, uh, to compete with TikTok and overall from what I can gather, seeming to piss off just about everyone in the Bookstagram community as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found out about this trend because one of my best friends is an avid Bookstagrammer. Uh, and so she was recently complaining to me that this was happening and basically saying it was ruining her experience of Instagram because what she really loves is the photos and the stories. But now every time she opens the Instagram uh, app, it's prioritizing videos. And she is basically like, I do not want to watch all of these annoying videos. Yeah, it's so interesting when a company has a good thing and then they look to the success of another company and start copying what the competition is doing to the real dismay of their current user base. It's almost like they all start to become the same in the end Mm -hmm. and forget what differentiated them. And it does seem that that Meta is uniquely guilty of this as they chase whatever future outcome they're chasing. Uh, In the meantime, I'm, I'm just curious, do you think your friend will stop using Instagram as a result or move over to TikTok? Yeah, that's hard to say, you know, because she's my age. (laughs) So I can Uh say like she's annoyed, but I'm not sure she's going to rush over to TikTok. You know, I found an article on Vox written in March in which the writer just reiterated essentially my friend's experience, which says Facebook has ensured the success of Reels by shoving its videos in your face every time you open the Instagram app. During Facebook's most recent earnings call in February, the company maintained that Reels was seeing tremendous growth, but it's unclear whether people are watching because they're seeking it out or because Instagram won't let them avoid it. Yeah, I'm definitely in that latter category. (laughs) I'm watching because I kind of have to sometimes or it's tantalizing and just appears. And just for definitions for our uh, listeners, in case they don't know, reels are just Instagram videos as opposed to stories. So on Instagram, what was previously popular before TikTok came along to inspire reels was that it showcased images, photos, basically. And then there were stories, which is a quick update, basically, that only lasts for 24 hours. Uh, These are not produced videos, which is what reels are. And so reels are different than stories because they get displayed in your feed as a post, which you can then share, whereas stories are more ephemeral and they're not coming up in people's feeds in the same way. But this is where users are getting ticked off, uh, I take it, because they don't want these reels in their feed and they don't have any control over it, if I'm right. Yeah, you are right. And uh, because Facebook is prioritizing reels, influencers, of course, are making more of them. You know, so it changes behavior online because people with Instagram accounts are like, oh, got to make videos. So there's just a lot wrong with this trend, not the least of which is that it also privileges people who are good on video, uh, who are attractive or funny. And it also brings out the people who are totally self-absorbed, of course. Mm -hmm. And it creates a situation where people are just spending a lot of time and money to make curated content. Uh, You know, I don't know. It's a weird world, Grant. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it also privileges people who do funny dances and wear skimpy clothes. And I I can only do the funny dance part, maybe. Uh, But but (laughs) 
but I'm not a video poster, uh, largely because I just don't have the time. Um, and I think you're right about not fixing what ain't broken, but obviously they have people at Meta studying these things and the audience these platforms want to capture and cultivate are always the kids, which we obviously aren't. I'll just make that observation. You can disagree with me if you want. So we're going to get left in the dust no matter what. Yep. <laughs> but we will never leave you in the dust, dear listeners. You do not have to worry about us changing up our method of delivery or that you might uh, try to listen next week only to discover that we are only available on video now doing funny dances. Um, no, we're going to stay old school and in your podcast feed. So please look for us on your favorite podcasting platform and please tell a friend because we want to create a larger conversation about writing and being right-minded. See you next week. <laughs> 